Hello and welcome to the Mindful Man Project. This is where we discuss all the issues and pieces of the puzzle that is mental health. We look at the things in life that get people down or create anxiety in their life and hopefully give some guidance on how to become a modern mindful man or woman. I am your host, Tyson Venables. On today's episode, we have Shelley Lasslett is the CEO and co-founder of Vite Coach, a startup that takes neuroscience out of the lab and into life to help people grow themselves and their businesses. Using the latest neuroscience, Vite helps businesses improve performance by empowering people, teams, and leaders. With practical neurological knowledge, tailored learning programs, brain-based coaching, and advisory services, Shelley is a social scientist and neuroscience coach as well as being the CEO of The Taste, Shelley is also a startup advisor, startup mentor, startup board member, and international speaker. Previously, Shelley was the general manager of YBF Ventures, a startup incubator and VC fund. Welcome. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so what I'd like to start off with anyway is just really getting to, to know you or letting the listeners know Shelley's been up to, Shelley gets up to. <laughs> Yeah, and um, go from there. Like your Instagram and stuff says that you're, you're a neuroscientist and a social scientist, but also a, like a, a business coach. So, yeah, just kind of expanding on those things that you've been doing and anything else that we can tie in. Sure. So the only thing to caveat is I'm not a neuroscientist. Oh, yes. I don't have a PhD in neuroscience. Yeah, okay. I have postgrad. Ah, and yes. I just have to be really clear about that with everyone because yeah. it would be a huge crime to my colleagues <laughs> and to my friends who have yeah. done those PhDs and put in those grueling years. I have not done that extent. So yeah, okay. I am a social scientist first and my postgraduate work is in neuroscience. Ah, I'm yes. Just, right. just going to be super clear. I'm not a neuroscientist. <laughs> Thanks for clearing that one up. <laughs> no worries. It happens all the time. Um, and it's it's totally cool. It's flattering that people want to give me that title so early on, but I haven't done the extensive amount of study that my actual neuroscientist friends have. Even though you are doing an immense amount of study anyway. <laughs> forever and forever more probably yeah. because the mind is hugely complex. And I don't think most good scientists, particularly neuroscientists, will tell you that. You don't yeah. ever really become an expert. You become more aware of what you didn't already know. And yeah. that perpetuates itself over and over, particularly in the world of neuroscience. Yeah, I can imagine, especially like, well, in science, you're always pr almost proving something different is wrong. And then especially with the mind, it's so complex. So you, I can imagine that it's just an endless puzzle of just like, oh, we found this out. Oh, but now this is now found this out that's different to that. Yeah, I, think, I don't know. I don't know whether it was you or somebody else that I follow who's in, um, in the neurosciences and they, um, they posted something. It was like a little meme the other day on Instagram. It was like um, the life of a neuroscientist is like there was like a, an ex experiment and then 24 hours later there was an old new experiment and the scientist is just sitting there yeah. like with their hand <laughs> over their heads. It is literally your life. Like, you know, it's estimated up to 70% of the times that something goes wrong in an experiment and not even necessarily goes wrong, but you get an outcome you didn't expect. Yeah. You have no idea why that happened. <laughs> like, yeah, and then you goes, your, your hypothesis is just out the window. 
Yeah, but also just like you, you don't know. So even things that we know that work incredibly well, like um, fMRI, where you're measuring the different challenges, changes in blood. So um, the magnetic perpetration, the magnetic properties of oxyhemoglobin or deoxyhemoglobin. We don't necessarily know why there's a delayed reaction that we measure. We know it happens, something based on the bold effect. We know it occurs. We know that we can understand which areas of the brain are more active than not during certain um, behavioural tests or during certain situational tests. Yep. But we don't know exactly why that process happens. Mm -hmm. And I think that probably highlights a lot of the time we don't always need to know exactly why it happens. Yeah. We just need to know what the measurement is. So fMRI was also measures a surrogate signal. It's a semi-quantitative procedure where we guess the differences between these delays and, and estimate. Yep. So it's, I think a lot of things in science, we'd love to say that they're completely quantitative and completely foolproof, but they're not. And yeah. as a scientist of any discipline, it's very dangerous when you say this is the only way and will forever be the only way, particularly when it comes to something like biological sciences and adaptable species. And humans are one of the most adaptable species on the planet. So it's very difficult and almost in my opinion, foolhardy to say that I'm an expert in this and this is the only way it is. This yeah. is what we know today. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, this is what you know today and of the past, you know, we know what's happened in the past, but even in the past, like that was surface has mm -hmm. been so on, like it was just scratched a little and hugely. Yeah. And this continue continuing this state of evolution, which is, would be exciting, but also in almost frustrating in the same respect it's very frustrating it's hard as well when you're learning because you read something you go oh that makes sense and then you read why it doesn't make sense and you go oh i have no idea what to believe now so you're trying to get your head around the concept initially and then you have to challenge the concept to the point that the concept isn't even accurate so yeah. i think science is people think that science is a lot more hard and fast or cut and dry than it actually is there's, there's yeah. actually a lot of areas of gray and a lot of areas for discussion and creativity we love to think that creativity perhaps is only in the artistics or the artistic areas or it's a thespian thing but there is a lot of creativity in science and there's a lot of artistic sort of thought process in science as well well yeah it takes a certain sense of a uh, certain level of creativity to actually even think of the things that you actually want to um start because mm. it's like well what if we do this and it's like yeah just being creative in trying to work out the problem to then try and study it in the first place 100 percent. and you're only as good as sort of the toolkit you've got at the time and i think even the discoveries around this idea of neuroplasticity and the brain being plastic and we're malleable only kind of came to a ability to be test tested or proven through the advances in technology of um, fMRI and EEG and all of those things that we now use to measure and understand brain function and brain activity. Scientists had long thought that to be the case, but we didn't have the technology to prove it. And I think as our technology advances, there is a, a theory that our molecular work, so looking at cells and supporting biological tiny micro reactions, will forever be advanced by only our technology advancements because we can't study that without technology and you can't access the brain really without technology because it's very purposely protected in your skull mm. that you don't want to open up unless you absolutely have to so 
we often can fear technology for what it you know could do but i think scientists will always look at it as a tool to understand what starts inside first so the the tech is just an enabler to get your idea and thought process and your hypothesis out there yeah whereas often people can fear the technology as the thing that's going to hurt the process whereas scientists really just look at it as an enablement to better understand to therefore better treat and better help heal but also preserve the species and in this case we're talking about humans yeah so that's it's so interesting and it's like just it's kind of circling back there for mm-hmm. anybody who doesn't know what neuroplasticity is it's kind of been mm. thrown around a little bit of a like, almost this thing now with people yes <laughs> become a little bit more aware of like what the the power of the mind and what it does mm. um yeah what would what would you say like um the, for someone who doesn't know what neuroplasticity actually is yeah so neuroplasticity ties into this idea that your brain and your, your central nervous system and your nervous systems are plastic and they're malleable and it can be remodeled and rewired in relation to experiences throughout your lifetime so we used to think that you were just set So your brain would get to its final evolution point of maturity, which generally happens in your mid twenties. That's where we get the, it's not that you're not mature before then it's that that's when you get the first full suite of neurological tools available to you. So we used to think that once your brain had sort of gone through that evolution, that was it. You were set, you were who you were. If you suffered damage, disease, disorder, dysfunction, too bad. And good luck. It's a slow decline to aging. Yeah. However, the principle of neuroplasticity is in contrast to that. And it is actually that your brain is malleable and plastic and you can relearn, you can remodel and you can rewire even through things like dysfunction, disease or disorder. So stroke patients learning to use their limbs again, learning to walk again and ride again and talk again is really what accelerated neuroplasticity becoming a field of study. And one of the doctors, one, there were many, but one of the doctors behind this is Dr. Mike Mazinich. He's still around. He's incredible. He, for his work on neuroplasticity, he won the Nobel Prize. Oh, yeah. And he says famously that your brain is plastic until you die. Yeah, right. Not when, not, and yes, it is more plastic when you're younger. In fact, zero to three is the most plastic the human mind will ever be. Yeah. But it's not to say that when you're 86, you don't have a plastic mind. And even those with dysfunction, disease, and disorder, so something like dementia or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, or schizophrenia, or anxiety, or ADHD, or autism spectrum disorder, even though they perhaps don't regulate and function in as well as comparison to what we would call controls or Mm -hmm. normal typical behavior, they still have a plastic brain. They are still adaptable and they're still capable of change. And I think this is very important because so often we talk about, well, that's just the way I am. Yeah. Well, that's just the way things are. Yeah, it's one of those conditions. And like, I'm getting old. It's just the way. It's actually anything. Yeah, I mean, obviously there is a bit of cognitive decline with your ability to adapt. And, yeah. But you still have a plastic brain and it's plastic until you die, until your final breath. And I think that, that is an incredibly important and empowering point to remember when it comes to change. Because change is is this ironic situation that we all have this incredible plastic malleable brain that's capable of creating new connections and repairing itself and rewiring itself. And yet change is really difficult. Mm. Yeah. Like 
it's scary. Change is actually it's, really hard. It makes people so scared. Like, it's so scary to do, but it's like sometimes once you've finished, made it, you're like, why was I so scared in the first place? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's because generally we fear the unknown. Our mm. brain doesn't, if we have your brain, basically, if we think about it and how it works is built up on a series of maps and pathways and pathways and connections. And when neurons come together in the mind and talk to each other, they form a, syn- a synapse. And your brain is made up of these junctions, these connections or synaptic connections where an axon and a dendrite connect. And that's, that's neurons talking to each other. And in these connections, we have little supporting cells called glia cells that support these connections in the brain. And basically our ability to learn and adapt, our ability to form memories, to change a habit is based on how those connections come together. And particularly around learning and memory formation is a type of plasticity called Hebbian plasticity. And that's, we can change and adapt. We can modify those connections based on our experiences. But what's really important and whilst it's still a relatively unknown area of neuroscience is self-direction in that change process. So actually being quite critical and directive in which connections form and what thoughts get more airtime and what ideas get the most airtime. Yeah. Okay. So we often, I mean, these connections happen unconsciously. We're not aware of them coming together, but we are aware of the thoughts which are a byproduct of those connections. Yes. So if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. Change these connections. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Oh, you go, you go. It's okay, it's okay. (laughs) No, 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 I can harp on like a boring scientist forever. So what are you going? Keep going. I was enjoying it. Okay, as long as we're not boring everybody to death. (laughs) (laughs) That's all good. So the idea that I think is really important when it comes to managing your own mental presence and managing your own mental state of mind is that you don't have to be a victim to these situations. You are actually still in control of these connections. Now they will happen unconsciously and subconsciously, but the moment you become aware of these connections, you become conscious of them, you can change them. And I think what's really important to know is you can't change what you're not conscious of. Mm, exactly. Yeah. That's, so, that's one of those things is like when you start to, as even I've, I've noticed more and more like you do that more self-development work and you do the more meditation mm. and you're getting to know like what's that you kind of are starting to unpack the stuff that's going on in your head and mm. you almost become like in a state of like imagine if I was still in that unconscious state whereas it's mm. like I just stayed unconscious and I, I walked through life and mm. I did I didn't I didn't worry about unpacking my thoughts and I didn't un- like <laughs> and you know what I mean and it's just but quite often, but that's where change doesn't happen. You just literally stay in that one on those train tracks, just from mm, mm. birth to death. And, but if you start to like, actually start to unpack what you're, you're doing and like, why does that happen? Or why is this happening? Or what's, what's, mm. what's occurring for that to happen? And it's actually really quite fascinating once you start to dive hundred percent. Yeah. That, that process of uh, thinking about your own thinking is what we call ment- metacognition. So mm-hmm. meta being small and then cognition of our own internal mind has a huge capability to influence and change our thoughts. In fact, it is, it's a conscious form of plasticity or what we call neuroplastic surgery, mm-hmm. but you're performing it on yourself. So a neuroplastic surgeon will do work on your brain in a theater, but your ability to use something like metacognition to change or challenge your thinking and therefore change those pathways and how they're prioritized 
is really your ability to do neuroplastic surgery on yourself. Yeah, and right. I think so that's actually, you can actually do it like a neuroplastic sort of work for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Your ability to challenge your thinking and think about things differently. There's a number of different techniques and tools that you can use, but simply that awareness piece of metacognition, because you can't change what you're not conscious of mm -hmm. and no change can occur without choice. So the process of discovery, whether or not you're using it through um, a yoga practice, a cognitive behavioral therapy, through a mindfulness practice, through something like neuro-linguistic programming, whatever tool you're using to unpack and understand and observe your own thoughts is going to leverage the process of metacognition. And humans, in theory, are the only species that can use or have metacognition. Though I do have to caveat, there is an argument that elephants and dolphins can do it too. Yeah, I was about to say. Very difficult to test. <laughs> you can't really ask them, hey, what are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, dolphins and elephants are incredibly intelligent. Yeah. And, but you can't really get an elephant in fMRI and get it to sort of, yeah, that, that's hugely problematic. So there is a theory, though, that they can do it through their social behavior. And actually, a lot of social creatures might have metacognition because they reflect and modify their behavior to stay in group. Yep. But for now, and particularly the most evolved species of being able to do it is definitely us. So would like, because we, they say we've come from the chimps and the, the, hmm. the, the apes, would they, have they done much testing on those like, species to see whether like they do still have that kind of metacognition as well? Yeah, so they have done a lot. I must confess it's not my area of research. Yeah. So I probably can't speak to it in depth. Um, yeah. But, I mean, you do share... With some of these species, we're talking 99.7% of your DNA with these species. Yeah. So I think what's really important to note is there's many things that you could say would be our biological advancement, but what's actually the most common and most agreed upon is language. Yeah. And that's a human's ability to speak, understand language, and therefore connect with other humans in a sophisticated way beyond those primates that we share very closely the amounts of our DNA with. Yeah. Yeah. It is actually language. And that to me, and this is probably more from my social science lens, applies to the internal conversation, our internal dialogue, and the power of that internal dialogue, which then transcends to be the power of the external dialogue, the conversations we have with others and the way we interact with others. Mm. Now, yes, there is an interplay. And we are in control of both what we tell ourselves and how we communicate with others. Mostly there are different theories on that, but mostly. And I think once we learn to master those conversations internally and externally, we become much more powerful and capable of, of mastering the power of our own mind. And, and what I really mean by that is the only conversation you can actually control is your own because yeah. you are the only thinker in your mind. We so often forget that nothing out there, out there being the world and the interactions with others can change anything in here within our mind without choice. Yeah. But that's also why you can be lonely despite the 7.7 .7 billion people in the world because there's only one thinker in your mind. And this is the beauty and the power, but also the, the danger and the curse of the mind. You can be very isolated yet be connected and you can be connected and yet be isolated. You know, it is. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And it's like, it's like what the yogis kind of say, mm. Sam, Sam Scar is. It's these sto mm. stories and the internal voice that you're telling yourself these different things. And you, 
and you got to check in with yourself sometimes and before those same scars become this huge mm. story like i am no good for this or these people don't like hanging out with me i'm not going to contact them but mm, that's the mm. stuff that you're telling yourself in the thing but i've had anxiety on and off and it's just those mm. things those little stories you start thinking about and go if i let this go too far and without checking it it's mm. and but then if i just go okay that's an internal voice this isn't actually happening yes externally and you go oh well no that's not actually not actually happening this isn't the real life 100 percent, and that you know that started obviously with your consciousness and i think it's it's really important to know with people when we talk about any form of and i don't often don't like the word mental illness because it's subjective but when we talk about mental states What's really important, and I think a lot of people don't understand, but is incredibly powerful, is that doing and imagining are the same to the brain. So when I imagine being in that state of being around people that I don't like or they don't value or respect me, I am imagining that happening. And so in that very moment, despite the fact I'm nowhere near those people sitting in my living room, my brain is playing through that that is what's happening and therefore invoking the same chemical responses as if that was actually occurring. Mm. And that's what makes it so real. Mm. Yeah, because you, you, you feel it. You feel that, that knot. Yes. The, you feel that knot in the stomach. You feel that sadness that yes. you, even if you're in the room and they, they actually physically said something to you in your, your face saying, I don't like you, you still get that mm. emotional and I think that's where people kind of start to go down that rabbit hole is like, cause mm. they're still starting regardless of whether it was happening to them right in front of their face or just them mm. sitting on the couch by themselves. They mm. are then going down in that little slippery slope of wallow. And, yes. Um, yeah. Or whatever self pity or whatever it might be. And it's, mm. yeah. yeah it's, it is mm-hmm. dangerous, but the converse side of that is it can be incredibly powerful you and the most one of the most common techniques of where this is used is sports psychology mm-hmm. where you visualize nearly nearly every session visualize what it feels like to perform under pressure this is also why athletes practice game situations at training so that when they come to the real thing you know they don't choke yeah they practice and they build a pathway and what i think is really important is that you can build a pathway in your brain simply by imagining it as strong as the actual experience and that can happen in a negative sense and a positive sense. So you're you saying, well, actually, you know, maybe that's not what's happening is a technique called reframing, where if we change the way we view a situation, our emotional response changes, comes from the work of Kevin Oshner and his team at Columbia University. It's not just a nice Wayne Dyer quote. Wayne Dyer did sum it up really well, but it is actually inherently backed by science. And that ability to, to check yourself and get yourself out of that thought pattern or stop yourself think of it like a detour put in the road of that pathway to redirect something else there's a very clear message and conscious plastic message to your brain to say hey thanks brain for all those potentially negative things i i don't actually think that's going to happen when i think about socializing and going out and seeing these people i'm actually going to think about all the reasons i want to be there and what i'd love to do thanks brain for reminding me of the things i don't want is really focus on what i do want Mm. And what's the story that I purposely want to tell myself? And I think often when we have those feelings, we think there's something wrong with us. We think like there's something inherently broken within us or dysfunctional. And they're just actually really normal human thoughts. Yeah. You know, it's normal for us to worry about how we're perceived by our group and, and want to be in group. We are social creatures and 
Our survival depends on being in group, therefore we desire to be accepted and in group at most times. However, we need to know that when we feel, it's not good or bad. Like feelings are not good or bad at all. It's what you do with them that put them into a negative or positive context. But to judge feeling is like judging oxygen for being in the atmosphere. It's, it's going to be there. It's part of being human and, and that's okay. And I think particularly in society, and unfortunately this is so prevalent for men and what makes me very angry to be honest and upset this has happened for men is that they are told to not do that and it's mm. a it's an unconscious process that they cannot control and so we rob we rob our men in society of this ability to normalize feel and be okay with feeling because we think that it's weak and lesser mm. and yet it's a really normal precondition to being human and you know, from a personal opinion to me, that has to change. Yeah, absolutely. We have to unbind men from that unfair prison we have locked them in from a societal lens. Absolutely. And it's just, and I find even, even back before I started my own work, and it was even just hard to even identify what the feeling was. Like you'd feel mm. it, you'd feel, you'd feel something. I don't know whether this is grief. I don't know whether this is sadness. I don't know whether this is like, I know I'm happy. I know when I'm happy because I'm smiling and I feel good. Inside. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just like when, yeah, when I'm feeling sad or depressed or mm. whatever, it's like, he, like, the, like the, the thing you always hear is a guy is just like, I'm tired or I'm just a bit mm, mm. Safe words. Yeah, the safe words. I'm okay. Mm. It's just like being able to allow the guys in society these days to express how they feel or even allow them the space to actually mm. un unpack it and go, okay, mm. what, like how you said, it's been packaged up and it's holding in. It's just like, how can they now start to unpack and work out how, what is that feeling that they're actually mm. rather than being told they can't talk about it or just mm. pat on the back and let's go for a beer and that's all we need to do. Yeah. Let's just drown our sorrows with some form of artificial high or yeah. let's, let's, use that artificial high to deal with what I'm feeling. And I think, I think you're totally right. Like that identification process can be scary because we fear the unknown. And also subconsciously we do know what the problem is and sometimes we don't want to deal with it. Now mm. denial, there is a theory that denial, which often gets a bad rap in psychological circles is actually a coping mechanism to stop the brain going back to a memory. It doesn't want to relive and refill because doing and imagining the same. So it's going to refill. You're going to refill that. Mm. And you don't want to because it is painful and it's scary and it's difficult. And to be honest, sometimes that's okay. I really get uncomfortable when people push mm. in this space around, well, you have to deal with your stuff. You have to own it. And it's kind of like, yes, but in their own time mm -hmm. and in Absolutely. their own way, not in the way that you think they need to. And what, I want to be really clear about is it's not that it's not that women need more social support and need to talk about their emotions more and need to feel their emotions more and men don't. That's actually a bit of a societal precondition that we've yeah. put on a neurological condition. Yeah. What I mean by that is men feel just as much as women, except in Western societies and namely our own, particularly Australia, we have said, well, as a woman, woman that's okay for you to showcase emotion 
But as a man, that means it's a sign of weakness. And that mm. is just, I don't get frustrated and angry about much, but I get angry about that because it's just bullshit. Yeah. Sorry, I probably should have said it. I was going to swear. But it's just crap. Like, and for any fella out there who's thinking, you know, I'm, I'm feeling this and therefore I'm weak. I just want to tell you, you're not weak. You are incredibly strong. It's your 250 million years of evolution of your brain doing its job. And there is nothing wrong with you for feeling. In fact, it is a byproduct and true sign that you are human and normal. Mm, absolutely. And so there's nothing to be ashamed of when you have emotions that come into situations. Yeah, exactly. And as a show at all, I, like it almost shows like a bigger man or bigger woman that you can actually admit that there is something wrong there or you are mm. feeling something and you need the help. Like, yes, um, you, you, it's, there's no shame in just even talking to your loved one or someone mm. in your circle and just saying like, this is happening. Like, what do you think that I should do? Like, or just mm. admitting that I, I need something I need something here that I can't actually physically do myself. Like what yeah. can, what can you, what, what advice can you offer me? And I think, yeah, as much as like the dudes that like really help hold it, having to hold things in, it does go for women too, but yeah, obviously the mm. girls have a little bit more um, freedom in how they can mm. unpack their feminine side. And I think that's also the other thing is like men, mm are told to and that's the feminine side is like you don't you don't talk about your feelings it's just like yeah. when men start to identify what feminine is in them mm. then they can start to go okay well i don't have to be a girly guy to be feminine but i can still mm. like identify with some stuff that's not actually full masculine all the time yeah and i think it is that balance but i i do think and it's it's really an important point to maybe touch on that connection, being connected with others, being seen, being heard, being recognized is a neurological need. It's, mm. it's not a nice to have. It is a neurological need and a precondition to a healthy mind in the same way that a balanced diet, hitting the gym and moving your body and actually sleeping well is a need. It I'm, is so I'm important. Yeah, I'm smiling. Ear to, I'm smiling ear to ear because, like, I actually said this to someone the other day. The exact same Good. thing. Good. Like, I, the, you see, like, personal trainers and trainers and stuff, mm. and they say you need to have sleep, diet, and exercise for th the, the three things that make work. But I, there's a fourth thing. It's connection. Because, like, if you don't have mm. connection and you feel like shit, mm. you're not going to eat well. You're not. Mm. Gonna, you don't really want to train because, like, you don't really if you have a mate that you go to the gym with, there's a connection that you feel great to go and exercise yeah. with your exercise partner. Um, and yeah, if you, yeah, I think connection is probably the biggest out of the four, because if you, mm. if you're lacking connection then none, the rest of the stuff isn't going to fall in place. Yeah. I mean, connection gives life meaning connection gives life purpose. And I think we need to remember that we are a social creature being in tribe, being in group is part of our social survival and therefore part of our physical survival. So being on the outer is really painful. And, and the reason that we can sort of identify and point to that quite clearly and psychologically is that social pain, emotional pain and physical pain are the same to the brain. And this comes from the work of Naomi Eisenberger from UCLA. And she and really has done a lot of work into this, that social pain hurts 
So the old Armitage that sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me is actually just complete BS. It's just wrong. <laughs> and so there's one theory that social pain is stronger and lasts longer. So you're more likely to remember being laughed at or picked on by a bunch of schoolyard kids for being emotional than you are to remember probably breaking your arm on the monkey bars when you mm. were six or seven or you remember it happened, but you won't necessarily remember the pain. Yeah. But you will definitely remember being laughed at by your peers and the pain that that invokes. And you relive that memory because doing and imagining are the same. But what I want to be really clear with here for fellas is like having your feelings hurt, it hurts. Like, you got to imagine it that if a fella comes into you or your mate comes into you, man or woman, and says, you know, I'm going through this breakup and it's, it hurts, that's the same as almost a minor car crash to the brain. Mm. And yet if our, our mate was propped up in hospital with a you're covering from a minor car crash, so concussion, potential surgery, fractured ribs, punctured lung, broken leg, we don't walk in there and just say, hey, hey, Tyson, let's go for a run. Yeah. But what we do do in society is when someone's going through heartbreak is we try and normalize and band-aid it up. Let's go for a drink. Don't worry about her or him or she's an idiot or he's an idiot. And we try and move on from that pain mm. without actually honoring the healing process. And what I would love for us to start to do as a society is to understand if we're going to honor the physical healing process of, you know, coming back from a car crash or an ACL injury from sport then we got to honor the feeling of coming back from the pain that happens with social pain where mm. we feel hurt when we get upset when you know stuff doesn't go according to a plan when we feel like we're not succeeding in our career when we feel like we're not being a very good dad or very good partner and the shame and the pain that, that brings that's as real as physical cuts and bruises to mm. the brain anyway yeah and thereby we we don't we don't need to have all the judgment associated if we can get rid of it, we absolutely should. Hmm. Yeah. Because it is the same. Well, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And it, it, it sh yeah, it shouldn't be discounted. It's just like, allow mm. that. And like, who is, who, like, who am I to tell my friend Jim that mm. he's going to be okay? It's like, if I wasn't in the same, in the same boat and I would, had just been through a breakup or, Mm. whatever and yeah i wouldn't want someone to say oh you'll be okay it's like well <laughs> hi emma here one half of flow states retreats i'm jumping on to let you know about our upcoming offering in byron bay join myself and tyson for four nights and five days on the beautiful beachfront of byron bay our accommodation is literally on the beach You'll learn to surf, or if you're already a surfer, you'll experience some of the best surf spots Australia has to offer. You'll have daily workouts, daily yoga, and you'll learn to meditate. We have a private chef, and our venue comes complete with jacuzzis, steam rooms, and saunas. This is an amazing opportunity to reconnect with yourself and to learn to find your flow state. All the information is on our website. Head to flowstatesretreats.com or check out the show notes. What, what, yeah. what can I, what can I do for you? Like what, what, how can I be, how can I be of service to you right now in your time that you need? Yeah. Like, um, yeah. I think that's the biggest thing is that. Yeah. You, those questions of how can I help you? You know, that recognition is really important. Like I can see that this is a really shitty situation and it's okay for you to feel shitty about it. Cause it is. Mm. 
you know yeah. you, i think you can say things along the lines and it depends on the individual you know it, it's going to be all right in the long run but right yeah. now you're probably feeling a bit shitty so what can we do about right now yeah. you know there's there's definitely that but that whole i feel awkward and don't know how to deal with the conversation so i'll just say you'll be okay is really just that perpetual band-aid yeah. that we're just band-aiding and band-aiding band-aiding and a gaping wound think about it that can only be a gaping wound for so long before it seeks medical attention and in this sense that medical attention is psychological attention yeah and and that's and ultimately we don't want to end up going down that track you just want to be able to have no. people who are just and it doesn't mean we have to become a society of people who are just crying all the time and just like <laughs> no i think that's true <laughs> and that's the thing i think that's why people and also is like they i think people get into this headspace of like oh we're just becoming a bunch of like sookie people who are just talking mm. about their feelings all the time but it's not it's just allowing people just to be a human like and actually yes. be what they actually are made to be they're feeling creatures like yes we are we we love to think whether it's like logical rational and i mean i do a lot of work in business and a lot of work in leadership in business and so we love to think that we make these really logical rational decisions based on data and we are devoid of emotion and it's got nothing to do with that and it's just business and it's just a complete fallacy like it's just a complete farce you are yeah. emotional creatures your emotions influence your decision making you never make a decision independent of emotion emotions are a byproduct of the decision making and they're also a fuel for the decision making and i think once we can just get off this idea that we're these cyborg or robotic decision makers particularly which from a male lens you value like we value that in leadership a lot mm. it's just inaccurate like Emotional and social intelligence and leadership actually drives better financial performance. There's a report by McKinsey and Co, the management consulting firm in 2018, that has demonstrated that with a leader, independent of gender, has social or understands the individual in front of them, the team in front of them as a person, not just an employee, by using empathy and mentalizing which is something called theory of mind we and therefore that team are able to make better decisions and that actually increases financial performance between anywhere from 20 to 35 percent so it doesn't just make good emotional sense it makes financial sense and i think this is what i was sort of touching on we've got to unbind people from this construct that we've put together that we are these rational beings the whole time. And the reason we want to be rational is because it's easier. It's cleaner. It's clearer. It's understanding. But emotion doesn't mean that you're going to get some crazy, you know, ultra, ultra um, sensitive structure. You are just going to get a rational decision that might have an emotional position. If that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's the thing is I think like with, and how you just touched on it with business and your coaching, it's like, especially with, the, I've seen some of your work with the men, um, and like the the, the um, yeah, the, some of the the meetings and stuff and the workshops you've done. I can imagine that it is a bit of like a, a roadblock sometimes <laughs> with like the the men knowing no, we've got to do it this way. It's like a logical, uh, analytical mm. way of like from A to B, and it's just like mm. that's one thing I think like with the feminine sort of thing is as well as like men are going kind of analytical a to b and but girls will go a b c d then get to e and be able to fluidly move through it and actually go okay this uh, we're not feeling this like this is a Mm. this isn't it yeah but boys will just keep going but 
Potentially. I mean, there is a lot of research to say that men have more front to back thinking and women have more cross hemispherical thinking. But even that can be challenged because you get anomalies everywhere. Yeah, and I think feminine, in terms of feminine and masculine, like energy or thought process, yeah, like in a, like a yogi sense, I think that has a place. Mm-hmm. But I think in terms of biologic and neuroscience, you know, we used to have to test for the difference between genders as a measure. But there is a big call within the community to stop having to do that because we pull false data. Yeah, Meaning right. we look for things that, we're looking for things which maybe we shouldn't be looking for. So mm-hmm. a lot of the time in, in gender studies, we like to blind test. Yeah, okay. So you blind test and you, you don't say what the gender of the brain is. And that actually in behavioral studies can get us better data. So there is absolutely a biological difference between men and women's brains. Men, um, men's brains are larger. It, however, does not mean that they are better. <laughs> I want to be really clear on that. <laughs> Size does not equate to intelligence. Um, and so there are differences in terms of um, the endocrine systems, so our hormones and the regulation to the hypothalamus and therefore the disease and disorders and I, really things that can happen to a woman's brain versus a man's brain. So anything to do with that functioning that regulates our hormones, yes, there will absolutely be neurological differences. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to behaviour and in terms of, you know, men are more logical or directive or headstrong and women are less, that's, that's the societal idea. That's something that we have have maybe told a man or woman and therefore they've adapted to that. So what you would call a societal and potentially an epigenetic change, your genes have evolved based on your environment, but it's not necessarily a precondition of that gender. So we normally talk about the gendered mind being a social construct away from the biological elements of hormones and endocrine regulation and therefore disease and dysfunction that I am definitely saying there is a difference. Yeah. Yeah. But behaviorally, we often pull false assumptions on the gendered line and therefore that can get us into a bit of a problem. So there's a fact that women have higher levels of dopamine but have lower levels of serotonin, so therefore women need more appraisal. And that it is just not a good fact to pull. That's just a complete like assumption, you know. And I've heard it all the time. It's like, what did I hear on a podcast the other day, which just made my blood boil? Like <laughs> Um, women need more attention because they need more approval and you know therefore that could probably explain why there's so many divorce rates in this country and you're like what? no like it's just every scientist is turning over yeah. and like blowing their mind up you can't you can't pull those types of assumptions which we love to do because we simplify and it's a known neurological bias we simplify the data to pull an assumption that confirms what we already believe and there's a confirmation bias. Yeah. And I think we've got to be really careful when it comes to gender around these things that, you know, we, fellas might think they're more like that, you know, or women might think they're more open, but I have equally seen data to the opposite of that in leadership yeah. and in the work that we do and in neurological studies of other people. So I think we kind of need to remember that they're a person first. You're a human first and then you're everything else on top of that. So when we talk about the human experience, the human need, the human desire, the human desire is emotional and the human need is connection. And we need to remove the barriers we have constructed around gender in relation to that need because they're actually just not helpful. Yeah, it's, it, and it doesn't. It's like it just it really just keeps that that 
it's almost an industrial age kind of wall up. Like it's mm. that it's like the 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 men go to work and the women stay home, and it's just mm. no, it's like it's everybody does has got equal part, equal share. They're just as smart mm. as one another. And yes, um, yeah, I, I think it's just a one of those really good things. And it's it's also that quantity of data that actually yes. a lot of people won't kind of like get on the back of something unless they've kind of got a quantitative value to mm. show like this is actually science this is showing yeah. that this is real like and yeah. um yeah i think that's the thing that like, people have got to realize it's we're no different other than what you like genitalia and physiology yeah exactly is. yeah so yeah we yeah. often call it gender beyond the genitalia yeah, so the okay. thing I was talking about before is related to your genitalia, which is related to the construct of your brain and therefore the hormones and the chemicals that are used. But I think, you know, societal conditions of, of gender are far more influential, shall we say. And therefore, because they're societal conditions, we can change them. And I do so strongly believe that we have unfortunately bound men into a bit of a prison around this idea that emotion is weakness. I mean, it happens for women too, but it happens in the opposite lens. You know, they, they probably get more of a perfectionist mm. dealing. And this ties very similarly to Brene Brown's doctrine, which I, I do believe in. Yeah. And this idea that like, you know, being involved in something artistic or emotional or soft is, is lesser for a man. And I mm. just don't believe that is true, nor do I believe that women are less suited to things in STEM like science and technology and engineering and mathematics it's just we have created that in society mm. and therefore we can uncreate it and Absolutely. we need to uncreate it by going back to the first and foremost what you are and that is human mm. so if you want to lay a gender on top of that that's fine but that's even that's an idea and even the science that you hear from that comes through the lens of what you already believe the famous saying is stats don't lie but statisticians do <laughs> You know, like you, you've got to be really careful with what, where the data comes from. And look, I, as a scientist, as a researcher, as there is so much stuff that you manipulate, but author bias, like a scientist running an experiment to find something that they think and believe and then using that data to validate what they already thought and believe is one of the biggest biases that gets in the way of research. Yeah, well, absolutely. And it's like that the classic, thing of like you see that big farmer and stuff like that they'll hire they'll 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 get a science <laughs> they'll get a scientist to prove anything to show that their um their their drug works and um yeah it's there is a problem there there yeah um i think i think it's i can't remember the scientist but yeah i was i was listening to a podcast and they literally just said the same thing as you it's like um yeah. you it's the um depend it doesn't matter who it is you just got to really and that's the thing is with these clickbait clickbait articles and stuff more so on oh, totally. media these days. It's like poor scientists. You can, <laughs> you can pull the stat, uh, any kind of statistic out, and then someone's going to read it and they go, "Oh my god, this is happening!" And it's like, "Well, did you do the research or look at a couple of different yeah. things to go in, into it?" And, um, yes, and it is that, and also papers. I mean, there's a lot of things that are you sort of when you start studying this, they they tell you just because something's published, don't ever believe it's true. Mm. Well, know, that's, so that's already probably getting proven wrong anyway like that's the thing is like somewhere you know, somewhere that's published but then someone's oh someone's published this i'm now going to try and find something that's like 
completely different on it. So, yeah, um, I, I think that is true. But most scientists really just write for other scientists, and that's what makes it so difficult. Like mm-hmm. it frustrates me, but I also understand that scientists are writing to other scientists to say, "Here's what I've done. Build upon it. Mm-hmm. Test it in your own way. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm right." I'm writing it for other people that have the same level of expertise as me. Yeah, so good. Unfortunately, that makes it very difficult for anybody who doesn't have a scientific discipline or even that technical discipline in that area of neuroscience to understand. Mm. So I do think, because as a scientist, you, you see some things or people in your field write some things and you go, oh, yeah, I see that. But then you see people who are unqualified writing on things that they shouldn't. Yeah. And that becoming popular opinion and that, worries me to the nth degree because as a scientist you can't sit there and criticize people who have taken something mainstream if you're not willing to bring your expertise into a way that people can understand Mm. you you cannot criticize or be frustrated when people pick up a mainstream idea that has no scientific weighting if you are not using your knowledge to explain it to somebody who isn't an expert yeah yeah, so you sense. can't sit in your ivory tower in your lab and say, well, these all people are stupid. And how could you even believe that that's true about vaccines or that's true about celery juice or that's true about blah, blah, or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And then not give a counter argument to demonstrate why those things are not accurate. So, so what we call SciComm, science communication, I think I would love to see more in the arena as we move forward because you can't just sit in the privileged position of your lab or your university or your company and not talk to people about the great things that you know in a way that they can understand. Cause people are not stupid. Mm. People do stupid things, but we did not get to the top of the metaphoric food chain by being stupid. Like you have a hundred billion neurons in your head. You are not <laughs> stupid. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you might think differently or do something differently or maybe not make the greatest choices in life, but you're not stupid. Yeah, exactly. Like there are more, there are more known ways to navigate the human mind than there are atoms in the entire universe. Right? You are not stupid. Yeah. So that frustrates me when experts sort of say, well, this, this person who's done a weekend holistic course, they're stupid. No, they're not stupid, but they're choosing to connect with the consumer. They might have a differing belief to you. It might be a wildly inaccurate one, but at least they're talking to their consumer. But it's, so yeah, and it's, also that, it's, up to that, it's also up to that person then to re- educate that person. Like, exactly. Like, if you're at a, like, that's where I get is like, yeah, I am a personal trainer, yoga teacher. I've done my various different trainings, but it's like if I was to say something wrong and a scientist saw it, it's just like either reach out and say, "Hey, like you've just said something that's kind of a little bit contradictory or shouldn't have been mm-hmm. said." Educate us on it. Like tell, like, yes. educate those people who are making those making those claims or whatever, because in that way, then you you are lifting the intelligence of. Mm-hmm. Those other oh, people. that person. Yeah. yeah, you're enabling their natural intelligence you to make a decision. You don't have to run an entire workshop for that person, but it just leaves no. out and say, "Hey, look, this is some research that you should probably have a look at." And yeah, completely. Yeah. And I think there are some amazing scientists in the world and doctors and medics that are doing so much good work in that space, who I am forever grateful for. Mm. But my thing has always been. You know, the paper that the research comes for is always is often inherent in its own flaws. That unless you've done, you know, tertiary education, you're not going to understand. Mm. And even when you do do tertiary education, and you still don't understand. Like scientists aren't always statisticians, and people forget that. Yeah. Like, 
you rely on the st- statistician to help you understand your data a lot of the time and, and that's okay. Yeah. But at the same time, you just have to be very honest with what you do and don't know. And I think that's what I sort of was saying at the beginning about, I would never claim to be an expert and the best scientists never claim to be experts. And it's always a telltale sign when someone tells me they're an expert in something, I'm like, Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> As adjudicated in by science you. anyway. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So even some of the most incredible scientists are, phenomenal at research but they're terrible communicators and vice versa some of the poorest scientists are great communicators and Mm. i think there's always going to be a balance with that but as an individual in the field you've got to know where your strengths are and you've got to speak what only you can speak on of what you know on and the the better that we get at saying oh you know we we don't know or this is what we know today or it's it's much more open dialogue and more open conversation and I'm not a PT, so I wouldn't pretend to understand. I mean, I understand a bit about the body, but I wouldn't pretend to be like, okay, every PT, you should listen to me because I know stuff about the central nervous system. Like it's just, it's different. And I think we need to honor the differences in training and practice because humans advantage is it's collective consciousness. You know, it's our ability to bring ideas together and discuss ideas together to then get to an outcome that makes us incredible, not mm. our individual ability to come up with perfect solutions within our own minds. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like where, and it's just li- like lifting the collective like consciousness of mm. society is actually helping each other out. It's just like, yeah. And this, yeah, tying back into like the, the men thing and stuff like the, it's just really just rather than kind of shutting each other down or if, or if someone's doing something different mm. or, and it's actually being in inquiry and having that connection and, and going, well, why are you doing it this way? Or like, mm. what have you tried doing? And just really, yeah, connection and just getting in that community side of, um, just even coming back into like the tribe situation, they would have all gotten around each other to help, in different aspects like someone goes mm. out and makes a kill they come back and they all help pull it, they apart do it together and they do it together and it's just like why are we now starting to like segregate off and go no you're doing it wrong you're doing it wrong mm. come together and come together yeah but, you do have that complication with modern life and mm. You know, technology helps, but also doesn't help. You know, we're more connected than we've ever been before, but loneliness, social isolation and medical conditions are higher than they've ever been. Now we have to be fair, right? You know, it's higher because it's reported more because we know more about it. That's, yeah. that's obviously a factor, but we also, you know, we are getting smarter. We are mm. adapting more. We, it's called, um, it's led by a researcher in New Zealand, a psychologist called, I want to say Jim Flynn, but it's called the Flynn effect. And I'm sorry if your name's not Jim, your first name. I know your last name's <laughs> Flynn. The Flynn effect that demonstrated we are as a society getting smarter, children are getting smarter, and that has increased our ability to harness technology. But technology was not built by technology. It was built by humans. Mm. And I think that, you know, digital connection in terms of helping with a mental health conversation is a really good thing because often fronting up to your mate and saying i'm not feeling okay takes a lot of courage and that in-person interaction maybe is not where you're able to start first maybe it's just a text to a to a friend or it's a phone call if that is an easier way to start the conversation about where you're at that's a great thing 
And often, you know, there's many apps out there that now help with supporting emotional well-being, mental well-being, and managing mental health conditions. And I think as scary as technology can sometimes be, you've got to remember that you're in charge of the technology you consume. Mm. Technology can't at you via your phone unless you pick up your phone and use it. Yeah. And you're still in control of what's on your phone, what's in your feed, what's in your face, as much as you're in control of who you see. Yeah. And so, you know, we love to sort of dark cast social media, uh, but you actually have to remember you're in control of that. Yeah. You know, don't subjectify yourself to a filtered life or a filtered position if you don't want to experience some of those feelings. Well, or fu- curate your feed to see yeah. people you want to see. And it's funny the way, like, even their algorithms and stuff, we, we blame a lot on the algorithms, but it's like... They're led by your behaviour. Yes, they're led by <laughs> your behaviour. Like, I, I can go on to, if I was to go on to Facebook now, I could search, like, candy machines and I'd have a million candy machine posts or mm. I could go and search um, neuro uh, neuroscience and then the next... 10 posts I see is going to be mm. something about a neuroscientist doing something. I'm like, well, if you're interested in something, find what and find that interest and mm. actually start cultivating what you're wanting to see rather than. Yeah, it's in, curated. In a, yeah, it is. And you can do. Be you your own curator. Exactly. And <laughs> you're you, in control of it. You can make the, yeah, you can make the algorithm actually work for yourself in a yeah, exactly. way of actually elevating what you want to actually see hundred percent percent, and it's the same in in actual society as well the quality and the connections and the connections that you have with people can be elevated through your conscious decision making to want better connections mm. to eliminate relationships in your life that are not serving you to connect with people that are going to give something back to you you know mm. connecting with ideas that make you feel positive and make you feel accepted and and loved and knowing that that acceptance and that love and connection isn't weakness. It's just a byproduct of being human. So we kind of haven't changed in that regard. You know, I'm not really talking about anything new that Seneca or Aristotle or Socrates probably touched on centuries ago. Mm. In fact, I know I'm not. Mm. And I know from all my research as a social scientist is I'm rarely talking about anything new. Mm. Uh, I'm simply building on the work of philosophers and, and academics before me. And yeah. I think we we don't need to throw out the baby in the bathwater as such. Most of the things we're talking about aren't new, particularly when it comes to technology. They're new ideas and that's at a rapid pace that we've never experienced before. But they're not so foreign that we do not understand them completely. Mm. And even if they are foreign to begin with, our brain and our species is so adaptable that we will learn to understand them. Mm. Yeah, it makes so much sense. I think we need to give ourselves a little bit more credit than often we do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's, yeah, we're out quite often. And especially in this day and age, we are quite um, hard on ourselves, especially in that mm. when we start to compare ourselves to our neighbours and you're like, well, what am I doing? Yes. And that's the thing. It's like it's coming back into that internal mm. story and being being internal, like just being in connection with your, like yourself first before worrying about what else is happening external yeah massively i mean everyone's favorite topic is themselves right when Mm. we have an interaction with somebody if they're off with us we automatically think it's exactly about us Mm. and we forget that this person has many other experiences and conversations going on in the background and things that you might never ever be aware of Mm. that interplay into how they're interacting with you 
but so often we make it about us. And this is what I think is a really important thing when we think about the emotional well-being of others and ourselves is that there is a conversation and a world that you will never be privy to in the mind of another person, mm. only what they show you. And it's kind of that, that you need to meet them where they're at. And part mm-hmm. of that is by understanding where you're at because mm. your brain is a reflection upon what you think and feel about the world of what your brain builds in your head as a model of the world. Mm. That's why we can all live in the same world, but experience it differently. Yeah. And so if we view it through our own lens, we need to remember that other people view it through their own lens. Yeah. And often what they're doing, how they're reacting is projection of their own thought process. Yes. To a degree, it's a reflection upon your behavior and there are some times that you're going to have to say, you're not, you're not vibing with me or I'm not vibing with you. You don't have to love everyone. Mm. We don't have to be doormats. We do have to still have self-respect. Yeah. But knowing that those, those can be quite kind and respectful conversation without having to be disrespectful and angry conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, might, you don't have to be one or the other. And it, and it might be a res- and might be a respectful conversation, and then you might not see or hear from that person for a, a week yeah. or so, and you have that cooling off period, and then you go, okay, like we've both now realised that yeah, we weren't gelling at that point in time. We don't have to completely cut a person off. It's just like mm. quite often, once people's egos get caught in the way, you're like, oh, yes. this person's ah, oh, this person's like attacking me. I'm like, no. Nah. At the moment, they're just not vibing with you, or you're not there. Yeah. Whatever they're, whatever they're feeling, and just being able to, being, um, be aware of like your own ego in that situation. I think as well is another thing. Hugely, because it's always through your own filter. It's always through your own lens. Yeah. And I think, I, I really do believe that when we come about, and you said, you know, that person's attacking me. Yeah. I think that's a really obvious statement about that you know social pain and emotional pain are the same it feels like they are attacking you with a physical object but it's words yeah absolutely and so to take those feelings seriously and to know that you know different parts of your brain are triggered at that point your emotional part of your brain amygdala which is primary part of that emotional circuit plays into it and that changes the way we think about things yeah and to know it's okay it's not good or bad like thinking isn't good nothing is good or bad but thinking makes it so is the statement. Mm. Now, I didn't write that. That's Shakespeare in King Lear in the 15th century. So, you know, if that thought was around then, it's not really new for us. We're just experiencing it in a modern way. And I think you've got to trust on your own evolutionary capability. It's not just that animals evolve around us. It's that people evolve too. We are animals really. Yeah. And to to sort of trust that intelligence within us because it is there. If you give it airtime, it will come through. Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing. Um, it's, yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> Sorry, I just got distracted, but it was something, I thought there was someone at the door. I was just walking past. Sorry to I everybody. Was like- I was just like... Yeah, <laughs> seeing your eyes going somewhere else. I'm like, yeah, interesting. No, I, was, I was just like... This, no, there was, I thought there was someone at my front door. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, gravy. Imagining, imagining. Yeah, yeah. Talking like, and imagining. Same, same. <laughs> um, I just want to be mindful of your time as well. So what I normally ask with my, uh, my guests is like three things that you could probably offer my listeners that they could probably take mm-hmm. away from our discussion today that um, they can like 
probably start to implement into their life or something going forward. Sure. So I think we've probably touched upon a couple of them. Um, but the first thing I really want to just sort of say to people, of, regardless of gender, is is you're allowed to feel. Mm-hmm. Feelings are not good or bad. They just are. And when you're feeling something, honour it. Allow it to be there. Even if you don't like it, that's okay. You know, yoga practices talk about sitting in the discomfort. That's okay. Don't, don't judge yourself for feeling because it's like judging oxygen for being in the air. In fact, in theory, it happens unconsciously first. As an argument, you have free won't, not free will. Mm. If something comes up, observe it and know that it's neither good or bad by nature, even if it's something which you think is negative or positive. So you're allowed to feel. It, it's never a sign of weakness. In fact, it's a sign of evolutionary design and that's okay. So, you know, allowing your feelings to be is the first thing. The second thing is if they're feelings that you don't necessarily want or they're feelings that are curious and you're not sure why they're there, using those sort of superpowers of metacognition, of thinking about your own thinking and trying to unpack where you're at and feeling. And sometimes that's a process that can start internally, but knowing that that process is strengthened through external connection, through talking it through with other people. It's called the talking cure for a reason. Psychotherapy is called the talking cure. And those synapses and connections I mentioned before, they change through speaking about problems and talking it through. You know, we can dampen down emotional or more limbic-based responses using a different part of our mind by labeling how we feel. That's why we say getting it off our chest. You are physically getting it out into the world of this echo chamber that exists inside your mind. So then you can deal with it from a different perspective. And we have been doing that from the moment that Homo sapiens came around. So that's not a weakness thing. Yeah. Right. That's actually a really good thing. So you know, that metacognition allows you to identify things that you don't necessarily like and that you want to change. But the change process happens through the conversation of doing something differently and trying something differently. Mm. So having a conversation with trusted people around you, working with a coach, with anyone who's trained in a therapy that you're interested in, working with your yogi practice, working with mindfulness, all of those things will help you heighten your awareness. But also just to learn that, you know, using metacognition to take yourself off autopilot and challenging your thinking. So if you think you're dead right, I challenge you to argue all the reasons that you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important one. Metacognition is definitely one of those things. And the last thing I want to talk about is something to take away is mentalizing, theory of mind, our ability to think about another person's position and take on that position, which you can dovetail down to empathy. That learning to meet somebody where they're at, including yourself, So often we think we should be over here or we should have achieved this by this point or we're not successful because of all of these reasons or whatever it is, is learning to meet yourself where you're at and knowing that where you're at is exactly where you need to be. Yeah. I like that. It might not be where you want to be, but it's okay to be where you're up to in the same way is someone might not be where you want them to be. You might want to be with someone because the potential of what they could become, but if they're not moving in that direction, learning to meet them where they're at Mm -hmm. and you can go on the choice of helping them get to where they want to be if that's where they want to go but you can actually only control your own mind so your number one responsibility is to use those tools of metacognition and awareness to understand yourself first and then use it to understand others by meeting them where they're at if that makes sense yeah i love that i love uh, those three points are just so good and yeah like you, you can't change what other people are doing. 
And at the, exactly. at, the at the end of the don't day, try at the at the end at the end of the day, like you're only going to keep beating your head up against the wall, and just you meet where yeah. It's, I've learned that in in relationships that I've had and still have, mm. and you're just like, okay, well, I'm going to meet this person where they're at right now, and that's all I can mm. do. And it's just yeah. overall happiness. That's it's your overall happiness over anything else, really. Completely. And if you want, if you want to be happy within you understand you first and what that means to you and your version of happiness isn't necessarily everyone's version of happiness and that's okay Absolutely. i think that is one of the hardest lessons to learn particularly for loved ones who you can see and want them to be something because mm-hmm. they can but they need to actively choose it and sitting back and making sure that you're in control or you're feeling your thoughts and honoring your thoughts is the first thing that you can kind of do to help them understand where you're at You've also yeah. got to meet them where they're at and allow people to meet you where you're at. Totally. I love that. Um, Shelly, let's wrap it up there. Um, where can my listeners find you, um, get in contact with you? Um, I know that you, you do the neuro um, coaching and stuff as well. So I'd love to be able to uh, let them know where that is and um, maybe hopefully reach out and get some help from you. No problem. So our website is probably the easiest way to find us. So we are Vitae, which is V-I-T-A-E dot coach, which is C-O-A-C-H. Yep. That's our website. Nice so, and easy. Yep. So it's we, we are Vitae, you say? No, it's literally just Vitae dot coach. Nice and simple. Or yeah, you yeah. can hit us up on Instagram, which is my name, which is Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y dot vitae v-i-t-a-e those are probably the best places for us but all of our events where we're speaking where we're going to be what podcasts are on all the podcast links including this one is all on our instagram profile so good yeah that's um a wealth of knowledge and i thank you so much for coming on today thank you for having me it's nothing short of a privilege to share thank you cheers Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. If you like what you heard and want to get all the info, check out the show notes. While you're there, rate and review the show. And one last thing, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the upcoming episodes. Until next time, my friends, continue to look out for each other and continue to lift each other up.